0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Brussels sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall Taylor,
1: and I'm Jim Townsend
0: and we're so glad you can join us Uh, today we are continuing with this week's series of rapid reactions to the flurry of diplomatic activity in response to Russia's military buildup around Ukraine, and as we discussed in our previous episode on Monday, the United States and Russia held their bilateral talks in Geneva. These talks are going to be followed by sessions with Russia at NATO, with the NATO-Russia Council on Wednesday and at the OSCE on Thursday. And so to help us make sense of where things stand and where we might be headed, we're really happy to welcome today Fiona Hill to the podcast. So welcome, Fiona.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. This is great yeah, to be We've here. been
0: wanting to have you forever and ever, so it's good that we were able to take advantage of this moment. Um, I'll do a quick background, a little bio on Fiona. Um, she is Senior Fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings, and she recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Europe and Russian Affairs at the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. So we'll just get right down to it. What did you make of the meeting on Monday?
2: Well, I think we're all still trying to figure out you know, what to make of it and um, everything I hope will become a little bit clearer as we move on. I think the biggest dilemma that everybody's trying to uh, resolve here is are the Russians really serious about having some form of diplomatic negotiation? We can certainly say that the Biden administration is, and they've put an awful lot of emphasis on it, but the Russians have laid out some pretty maximalist positions on what is now a whole series of different issues. It's very clear that this is not a discussion just about Ukraine. It's not even just a discussion about European security and European security frameworks, even though that is the thrust of the discussions. It's really kind of now a discussion about the U.S. role in Europe as well and and whether, you know, Russia even sees the United States of having any permissible role, not just NATO itself. Uh, You know, we've heard that the main points that the Russians were emphasizing in these talks in Geneva, which, you know, we also have to say, I mean, you um, obviously know this as well as I do, that this was framed in the ongoing strategic stability dialogues um, that the United States has been conducting with Russia for quite some time. They've been on and off, you know, depending on um, various uh, incidents as much as anything else. But they've always been framed around that idea of the old concept of strategic stability, which was in the arms control field, mostly in the nuclear arms control areas that Jim, I mean, you worked on and you've actually taken part in things like this. But also, you know, perhaps moving out into the conventional uh, uh, military um, uh, talks as well. And then there'd been debate in the past about whether to include cyber or keep, you know, cyber in some different format. But now that uh, ongoing set of talks has been framed in this or is now framing this larger discussion about European security and the US-Russian um, bilateral relationship. And, you know, Russia um, obviously is making it clear when it went into those talks that it has these demands that it laid out in the two documents it put forward in December 17th about basically NATO agreeing and guaranteeing that Ukraine and other former Soviet states will not be uh, members of NATO, that NATO actually pulled back, in fact, from uh, all of the activities kind of associated with NATO membership from uh, countries that joined uh, in the period um. After 1997, and they've kind of created this, and this would be an interesting thing to talk about, about what do they mean by all of this? Uh, The countries, not just of uh, the former Soviet Union, like the Baltic states, which we, of course, never recognize as being part of the Soviet Union after World War II, but also the countries of the former Warsaw Treaty Pact, uh, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, you know, for example, and their membership in NATO. And then, you know, the kind of idea that the United States pull back, you know, out of NATO, NATO basings, NATO troops, and certainly not conduct any exercises without Russian permission. And what we got as a message coming out of Geneva is that uh, the Russians didn't want to discuss anything beyond that if we weren't going to agree to it right away. And of course, now we have the NATO uh, meeting uh, coming up in Brussels. Um, appropriate for a Brussels sprout um, uh, podcast. And then from there, um, uh, another set of meetings where one could talk about broad European security for the OSCE in Vienna. So I think we just kind of still left scratching our heads and, you know, worrying that, um, you know, the Russians are being so maximalist in their positions that they may not be really very interested in the diplomatic effort. Although there are, do see some to be seem to be some glimmers that you know there, there are things that they want as we know they want out of diplomacy. So how much is Ukraine under threat? to Ukraine uh, literal gunboat diplomacy, and you know how much is it really kind of uh, an effort to sort of force uh, ongoing discussions about European security, or how much is it you know actually a pretext uh, for actually doing something and changing the dynamic?
1: Well, thank you. That's that's uh, very much along the lines I was thinking as well. And you know, I as I've heard about what happened yesterday, and and kind of some of the some of the um, the the uh, Russian positions, I was struck by. It seemed that that they, in terms of being prepared to discuss, and and again, they weren't negotiating. This is a dialogue. We were both laying things on the table. Um, but it seemed that uh, not only were they under just really strict. Uh, uh you know strict i guess instructions not to go very far past talking points in this type of thing to come to putin himself but they didn't seem very prepared to uh to talk some of the details and, and what i'm getting at is if he was really interested in relooking the cfe treaty you know really looking at the balance of conventional forces including the nuclear balance and which are so complicated so detail oriented but but a relook could be helpful for us and for both sides in a lot of ways dealing with problems that are out there. Um, I just I kept thinking they just didn't it doesn't sound like from all the you know media reports and things that they were, were quite ready to even go very far on that. And I and so I was wondering just how serious do you think Putin is for that kind of thing? Is that something that in his mind he is. that that it really is an objective for him to have a Congress of Vienna in a sense to get a rebalance done in Europe? Or really does he have kind of some lower level goals that he's trying to get at and something as grandiose as a relook at CFE that that really hasn't really been that much on his radar. It hasn't been that big a concern for him. Uh, And while he's kind of entertaining something that big, really his goals are a bit less than that. What do you think?
2: Well, you know, I think that, the you know, CFE and those kinds of issues are details. I think what he is pushing for is something big. And I think what's interesting, you know, when you think about the, you know, the format in Geneva, obviously Sergei Ryabkov is a really seasoned diplomat and somebody, you know, who has a great deal of knowledge and experience in all of these issues, he's very capable of negotiating on all of these fronts. But he clearly hasn't been given the plenipotentiary authority to do so, which I think is what you're pointing at, Jim, right? So our guys who go in there and gals, you know, with uh, Wendy Sherman and, you know, the whole team, they have been given plenipotentiary authority to push, you know, the envelope out there. There's always this um, discrepancy in the kind of Russian approach and the US approach, as we all know, having, you know, been in these situations ourselves, that the U.S. team does have a lot more authority to negotiate and the Russian team is following instructions to the letter. So there's, you know, kind of one um, issue right away. So they obviously haven't been instructions to get into any details. And what they're clearly pushing for right now, gunning, you know, for is the big the big thing, which is the capitulation in a way of the United States, this agreement that, yes, yes, we we, we agree on a, a, a concert in Vienna. Uh, And look, if they can, they would love to see the United States retreat out of Europe. I mean, they are even questioning the legitimacy of the United States being part of European security. Right. I've quipped um, in another context, what about the Canadians? Because it's not just us, you know, from the other side of the Atlantic there. You know, they haven't said anything about the Canadians. but I shouldn't raise that. But, you know, kind of this is a North Atlantic, you know, treaty organization. So it's, you know, kind of it's not just about Europe. It is about a larger perspective here. Yeah. But, you know, the, but the questions are, you know, focused on uh, the European front. But I think that they really want to see if we're willing to renegotiate the whole larger uh, post Cold War European security architecture, and then they could work out some uh, some details. Now we've said a lot of this is non starters, but I think Putin's trying to push it, and of course, you know that there are multiple levels of threat there that they're pushing it with. I mean, we we hear you know life fire exercise is now underway on yeah. the eve of Geneva. that's not very diplomatic is it and it's not yeah. intended to be because it literally is gunboat diplomacy where the whole smattering of hypersonic missile threats thrown in too not by Rabkov, although they keep talking about military technical responses if we don't do something but you hear key duma members you know talking about well perhaps russia should but, you know, launch a strike, you know, just to make sure that it's clear that they're serious, just as Israel talked about, you know, launching a strike against Iran if Iran wasn't serious about, you know, nuclear negotiations. There's all this loose and very furious, even visceral talk, you know, kind of in the uh, certain circles in uh, the uh, Russian commentary. It's not, you know, in the larger public domain. Somebody had noted that, you um, Russia's taken the temperature down on some of the talk about Ukraine, but the temperature's gone up on the European security front and on the role of the United States and on NATO, which is showing that that's where they've got targeted right now. Even Ukraine might be more of a detail, you know, than it was previously before we got to Geneva. So this idea about something big, which I think is absolutely right, um,
0: why do you think that Putin? calculates that now is the time to do it. Just just to hear your thoughts on, you know, clearly something has changed in Putin's calculus that he feels that now is the time to push for something like this. And so why do you think that is?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think all of us have noticed that, right? Is it something personal? You know, is it something, you know, temporal? Um, You know, because clearly why now? Because I mean, we weren't really actually doing anything more different than we've been doing before. You know, there was, of course, that, um, you know, the use of the Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian military using drones that, you know, kind of, I think, raised some temperatures on, you know, the battlefield in Donbass. We've had, you know, visits and exercises, um, you know, visits by Secretary Austin, exercises sea breeze in the Black Sea. But there wasn't something particularly happening around in December that, you know, you could see to get their ire up. I think it actually had a lot to do with, uh, in part, anniversaries. So the anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, the 30th um, you know, anniversary, the 30th anniversary then of the independence of all of the states like um, Ukraine and others. And also, you know, Putin himself looking ahead to 2024 when he has to put himself up for re-election again. But, you know, obviously that's going to be conterminous with another, you know, election here in the United States of the presidential election. And then looking at Biden And thinking, you know, perhaps he's, you know, kind of more temporary and transitional. We have our midterms coming up in uh, in November. And everybody's already talking about that in the United States about, you know, that political calendar and what that might mean. And I think they started to also worry that our attention would not be focused on them at all. Because I mean, what happens always in Russia's experiences is something happens as an incident we have a flurry of diplomacy and then we disappear because you know we're worried about china or we're worried about covid or we're worried about climate change or we're worried about congress and politics all the other you know issues that are always on our agenda and they want our full and undivided attention and i think that you know putin against the backdrop of all of these anniversaries and this head of steam that's been building up in uh, for him personally and for many others is a very emotional element to all of this in russia about the anniversaries and about then revising uh, what they see is this unequal, unjust post-cold war non-settlement, and they've been talking about this forever. Two thousand and seven at Munich, you know, you name it, they've been trying to signal our attention uh, to, you know, really get something done. And I think he just decided, you know, I can't say exactly what the trigger was, but that this is the time and they want to get it now. And they're going to keep on the pressure, keep up, uh, you know, the the, the life fire exercises, keep people on the board as long as they can. And then, Jim, I mean, this is something that, I mean, you could obviously speak to, you know, how long can they keep themselves in this, you know, kind of state of alertness and, you know, perhaps readiness to go on the military side I mean, we haven't seen all of the signals yet for any kind of imminent attack. But, you know, you you can't keep people deployed in the field indefinitely, you know, or can you? But I mean, anyway, the kind of sense is that they've got a window as well in which they would have to act. And the threat always has to be credible for Putin. You know, the big risk for him is if we continue to say, oh, this is just a bluff. He wouldn't poss- he couldn't possibly do something. He has to make it seem like, yes, he could. And if we kind of feel like, well, he's only playing, that he's got to do something to again make that threat credible, which is we've seen him do over and over and over again, Crimea, Syria, you know, multiple times, Georgia, you know, this is not a man who messes about, he has to, if he threatens, he has to deliver, and he wants to again, get us to act as quickly as possible before our attention diverts, you know, yet again to something else that we're more worried about. Do you think his um,
0: objectives have shifted? So obviously, you know, the, the, there was the military buildup in April, and that seemed to be quite a bit more about Ukraine um, and Zelensky and and you know his unwillingness to implement Minsk and some of the anti Russian rhetoric that was in full display around that time frame. But do you think his his objectives since then have changed as he's kind of gauged Western response and where we are to come into something bigger, talking about U.S. presence in, in, in you know in America's role in European security. Do you think it's evolved
2: or do you think he set out to have this conversation that we're having today? I think it's evolved, actually, with the opportunity arising. So that's kind of another element that I didn't really, you know, kind of get into there. This has always been a goal. I mean, you know, Jim, you mentioned the concert, uh, Cong, you know, concert of the, you know, Europe, Congress of Vienna, all these other kind of old formats. You know, so many times since the 1990s, uh, Russian diplomats and Lee, and Putin himself have put forward ideas like this. I remember, you know, sitting, you might have even been there in a presentation by Uh, Lavrov, Foreign Minister Lavrov, on this very topic of, you know, kind of creating a new European security order around the time when uh, Dmitry Medvedev had gone to Berlin. And they were kind of, you know, pushing, you know, back in 2007, 2008, this whole idea. I mean, in 2017, when I joined the NSC at the Hamburg uh, G20, they presented, you know, some uh, ideas of this too. It's not; it's never gone away. But the opportunity to really push it hasn't been there, and I think that's what kind of shifted for them. They see a, a period of acute weakness on our part. I mean, they mirror imaging actually from their own position in the 90s. They see, you know, the withdrawal from um, Afghanistan. All the cleavages that that created within yeah. NATO, they see you know kind of the uh, exit of Angela Merkel and a new you know relatively untested German government coming in with different you know perspectives. They see you know a President Biden who's worried about the home front, you know against you know the whole kind of backdrop of domestic politics and all of our you know fears for our own democracy. The UK fighting with France, the Poles, you know, kind of on the outs uh, with Europe, they just see so many fractures and and so much friction everywhere that this, for them, seems like a good time to act. Even COVID and the next surge in the pandemic, you know, we're all distracted, we're all weakened, and they know for a fact that we don't want this. You know, the Europeans don't want another war on European territory. You know, everyone's concerned about how to handle China and how to handle all the other issues on the agenda. And so this is a time to act in the hope that, you know, maybe we'll come up with something that satisfies this, you know, 30 long year long and particularly 21 year long uh, period of grievance for Putin and, and try to get something out of it now. Maybe not the maximalist approach or, or the maximalist goals. I mean, they can't get all of them, but maybe they'll get something out of it and they want to see what it is before you know they'll move further. So they've really rammed the ball, not just hit the ball into our court. They've rammed it in and they're forcing us you know, to, you know, to basically address their grievances and their goals. Our problem is how do we get a grip now? You know, how do we actually try to set some of the agenda ourselves? And you know, that, I think, is the big dilemma coming out of Geneva, because, you know, what we've seen is they're not going to budge right now or start to talk about the details of other issues where we could actually have a negotiation because they, they think that we'll just do what we always do in their view, get diverted over to that. And so they'll end up in endless rounds of talking about a new INF or post-INF or, you know, a new start or something like this. You're I want to, one more
0: question, and I know Jim wants to get one in here, too. There's fewer people who have, you know, spent more time than you studying Putin. I actually have your book sitting right here, Mr. Putin, <laughs> Operative in the Kremlin. Do you think that Putin has made up his mind about the way, what, what, what he's going to do, or do you think he's feeling his way through this? Do you think he set out with a plan and he, he knew what he wanted to do or, 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 I mean, maybe not set out now at this moment in time, coming out of Geneva, do you think he's made up his mind about how he's going to play this or is he really feeling his way through this?
2: It's all contingent. The guy's a contingency planner. He has these big goals and then, you know, kind of he sees how things are going and, you know, kind of adapts his play accordingly. I think what we have to be very clear in is that he is already calculated in the risk of going the whole way into Ukraine. He wouldn't threaten it if he wasn't prepared to do something and to deliver. And that's something, you know, kind of. You know we can see uh, the contours of all of this and i mean jim you know it would be you know good to hear you know from uh, your perspective and kind of dod of course they could go in and invade more of ukraine and you know kind of occupy or maybe pull back i mean we've seen them you know do things over and over again i mean we keep saying why would he do this you know well i mean why not from his perspective you know he doesn't care if, if um ukraine's destabilized and if masses of refugees, you know, go into Poland or the Ukrainian military retreats into Poland, you know, they can you know kind of pull back and leave chaos. Now, you know, we would say in a you know, from our rational point of view, well, that would be a disaster. It would be a disaster for Russia as well. But you know, that that's thinking along our lines. For Putin, he wants to teach the Ukrainians a lesson. He wants to teach the Poles a lesson. He wants to teach the Bolts a lesson. He wants to teach us a lesson. He wants to teach Europe a lesson. And, you know, there are statements coming out, um, you know, right now, you know, from uh, Russian commentators saying, now you see that Russia doesn't need peace and doesn't necessarily want peace. And Russia is trying to see what it can get out of, you know, kind of threatening war. And that's kind of basically what Putin's trying to see. What can he get out of this? What more does he have to do to push towards these goals and what can he get that he might be satisfied with so yeah, I, I don't think i don't think at this point he's made his mind up exactly what he's going to do but he has a lot of contingencies it was clear when they annexed crimea that that had always been a contingency and they just kind of pulled that off the shelf and then implemented it but it didn't mean that they were necessarily going to do it at that time so when they say you know we're not intending to you know attack ukraine they're thinking their minds yet <laughs> right. or right now it depends right yeah, I think one thing, a useful way to think of it too, is not just
0: he's weighing the costs that the U.S. would impose if he takes action, but it's also for Putin, the costs of not acting. And like his calculus about the way that Ukraine is trending. So if he doesn't act now, there will be significant costs from their perspective later. So it's not, you know, he's not just saying, benefit you know, cost and benefit in this moment of acting versus not acting, but there's this future cost that
2: he's factoring into his decision and from his perspective i that's mean he- on Andy, andrea because he's also the master of preemption so if he thinks that somebody else has the capacity and the capability and maybe the willingness and intent at some point to do something even though they haven't done it now and whenever we telegraph well, we're going to do this or we're going to do that we could do this he wants to head it off so we can't do it um, you know, everybody talks about well, he's playing chess, so he's moving a pawn or something here and there. But, you know, we also have to think about, you know, Putin is what he is, is, you know, somebody who is very proficient in judo. He's always kind of looking about what the opponent's about to do. How can he leverage something? How can he intimidate? You know, how can he just play a much longer game? Who might he have to contend with later on, you know, down the line in another tournament? How can he leverage something and someone's strength against them? How can he take advantage of a weakness? You know, and, and again, as I said, he's got all these players, you know, these kind of set pieces of things that he can do. He just doesn't know whether he needs to you know, particularly do that. But if he has to preempt something, he will absolutely do it. And, you know, what what do we see in Venezuela you when know, I was in the NSC when this happened? Uh, and, you know, it was entirely predictable, sadly. As soon as he thought there was a hint that the United States might intervene militarily, Even though we were actually planning some humanitarian, not, you know, some military intervention What did he do? Moved in like 100 guys on a plane, specialists, kind of preempt that, but put some Russian boots on the ground. It was a really clever play. I mean, we weren't actually, you know, intending to invade. And then it was like, whoa, okay, that, you know, kind of option came off the table. So what can he do to change the dynamics? So that's why we can't rule out doing something more in Ukraine. I mean, they annexed Crimea to preempt the possibility You know, as he said, you know, somewhere down the line of NATO ships appearing in, you know, Sevastopol or, you know, somewhere at some point during an exercise did not like that idea. Or, you know, the kind of a change in the lease on the Black Sea fleet, you know, for example, or just any kind of thing about, you know, Ukraine moving closer to NATO in the absence of Yanukovych. And, you know, everything is about a preemption and a contingency. So, I mean, we... Are really always something of a disadvantage there. We have to ourselves start to think about, you know, how we would do the same kind of thing to move towards the goals that we have.
1: You know, that preemption, I think, is really a great point because that's what can freeze us in terms of action to be taken. Uh, I think earlier we've heard people say that, you know, why aren't we doing something right now to send in forces? We should be doing something right now to to really push a lot of uh, more sophisticated arms into Ukraine. Uh, and the and response has been well, we don't want to provoke him, et cetera. But it's it's not just provoking. It's really he has this, as you were pointing out, this uh, he's very quick to preempt. And so it's not just provoking him as much as it is uh, uh, that that uh, that reflection to preempt very quickly to cut off a move that we might make. It's a bit of the you know. It, it, so it's a it's something that makes us then. Um, you know freeze up and and take options off the table for us because because we think that might cause them to preempt and to do something else and so it's it makes it really tricky for us uh, and i think it's very well stated that that preemption bit
2: the only the other thing too is you know kind of it's not all about putin is it but russia is more of a actor, and we're not that <laughs> we're yeah. not that on the home front and we're not that with our allies And so that gives them an awful lot of advantage as well. I mean, that's one of our strengths over the longer time. We can often come up, you know, with all kinds of different approaches and there's all kinds of, you know, kind of uh, flexibility also in our systems. But when you're dealing with a, you know, a a unitary actor that's inflexible in terms of their goals, but flexible in terms of their ability to move, because you. doesn't have checks and balances. He doesn't have the media, you know, kind of uh, pouring over him at every time, trying to figure out what he's going to do. Yeah. You know, kind of, I mean, that's part of our point. We have to be transparent. We have to talk about what we're doing. And that gives them, you know, kind of, we have no element of surprise. <laughs> and he has every element of surprise. Yeah. And he doesn't have, you know, people yelling at him about what he's doing. It's a kind of a whole cohesive group. You know, his guys are always on point. <laughs> you know, they're always on the talking points. And, you know, we're all over the place at times.
1: Yeah, he doesn't have the midterms to worry about.
2: <laughs> no. There's nothing going on there for him. Not, 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 not at all. And he doesn't have, you know, members of the Duma holding up his ambassadorial appointments. You know, he doesn't have the, as I said, the media. You know, blabbing. You know, on you know every plan ahead of time. You yeah. Know? And yeah. he has, you know, basically people who are commentators you know, kind of who are very much in sync with what the Kremlin is saying. You know, when you hear various commentators say things, you know that that's, you know, part of a kind of a message that's coming out of the Kremlin, where we have just a lot of speculation and people, you know, talking on their own behalf about what they think. They're not, you know, talking on the behalf of the White House.
0: So I guess maybe slide one last question in here. I wanted to ask about the Allies, but that what you just said prompted me to do something else, because the flip side of what you just said is, you know, he's not privy to all of the information coming in. It is a dictator's dilemma that the more repressive you are, the less attuned you are to public sentiment, the less, you know, there's a, the the greater the risk that you're not actually getting exact, you know, high quality information because people are screening or picking and choosing what they choose to tell the good czar, you know, to stay in his favor, all of that. So there is a flip side to that. And I guess I wonder, you know, what are the risks for Putin that he could miscalculate here? I mean, if you're looking into the future, and so he's gonna go down, if, if he in fact goes down this path where he escalates in some form in Ukraine, are there, what kind of risks do you see to Putin? Um, and you know, th- there's also this kind of debate about whether or not this is something that the Russian public is actually going to support. Um, do you think it's risky from a domestic perspective as he's thinking about 2024?
2: I think it's all very risky, honestly. Um, You know, there is a great risk of miscalculation. And, you know, so far we've seen him take a lot of calculated risks, things he can get away with. You know, everybody kind of said, oh, there'll be a quagmire in Syria. You know, he'll, um, you know, they'll get, um, that's incredibly risky intervention. I mean, he's managed to manage those risks. I mean, the the most costly, um, uh, uh, one of the... um, in operations in Syria was done by the Wagner Group when they fired, yeah. fired on our special forces in 2018 and boy, did they, you know, kind of uh, get casualties there. But that was also a calculated risk that, you know, the, the uh, uniformed military didn't know that that was happening. We'd had all of this, you know, back and forth between, you know, the official military and the U.S. military. The rules of engagement were very clear. They tried something out you know, kind of uh, what they thought was kind of low risk. It turned out to be extraordinary high risk by using paramilitary forces, you know, to uh, launch an operation. It really backfired. So sometimes they miscalculate it. But, you know, obviously the consequences were a lot less because this was a subversive action, covert action. And it didn't, you know, kind of reverberate onto the kind of the larger scheme. So, you know, there are episodes where we can point to, well, look, they actually screwed up there in a major way. Um, so they've always got to be calculating. We've seen, you know, episodes in the past that they've, you know, tried to address, where, you know, early on in Ukraine um, and also in Syria, they did have some mass casualties from one, you know, particular unit, and you know that had a backlash on the domestic front. Then they started kind of mixing it up, so that you know you didn't have uh, people from the same units on these kind of proxy operations. Uh, you know, kind of uh, so there wasn't localized casualties that might be coming from all over the country. It's a big country. So people wouldn't notice so much, you know, back on the home front. You know, so there's all kinds of ways in which they've tried to lower the risk to their forces. But as you said, it's not necessary. This is going to be popular in, you know, in Russia itself among, uh, you know, the whole idea of a war or a larger war with Ukraine or, you know, kind of a larger uh, uh, confrontation with Europe. Um, particularly, you know, if uh, Russia starts to look like it's the aggressor, though, I mean, they've got a pretty big grip on the narrative here. But, you know, nonetheless, this could backfire. And it could backfire, you know, overall, if others don't respond in the way that they want them to. I mean, I think that they're pretty feeling a bit cocky and confident right now, even in the wake of what happened in Kazakhstan, that they moved in quickly, they nipped that in the bud. But, you know, they are overlooking the fact that all of these events in Kazakhstan and elsewhere in the, the region had domestic roots. This isn't the manipulation of revolutions from externally. They've got a lot of their own internal problems, just like the rest of us have. And they can't be sure how this will all play out over the longer yeah. term. So I think there is a very high risk of miscalculation. I don't think that they've got complete information. They do a lot of mirror imaging. They're assuming that the United States and the West is weak in the same way that, you know, the Russia was in the immediate um, aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, they see us in the same position. I think they think that NATO can be exploited. NATO is very weak. And, you know, they're maybe not expecting the allies to come around. I think that they think that, you know, Europeans will be like, yeah, yeah, look, we don't want war. We want the US out of here as well. And that, you know, they've softened up the environment sufficiently. And they could have, you know, uh, not calculated in what some of the impacts and effects might be of a European response. I mean, I think if the Europeans really, you know, react in a forceful way to this, that might not also be what they're expecting. Which is another reason why they want to have it just the U.S. and um, uh, and and Russia. Yeah,
0: there are, and I also think. I mean, this just to add to your list of uncertainties. I also think they calculate to a certain extent that China will help alleviate some of the Western pressure, but I still think that's a proposition to be tested. You know, how when how much skin in the game does China really have, and how will how much will it how much Heat will it be willing to take to be the one who kind of helps yeah. Russia get and also through
2: within within the UN system? I mean, they're basically denying Ukraine the right to exist, not just to um, you know basically what they're saying about you know we had that with Iraq and Kuwait, right? We've had that with in, in other circumstances as well, uh, you know, and for there are many countries in the UN system who have the same history as Ukraine being, you know, the result of, you know, kind of the collapse of empires and, you know, kind of post-colonial uh, creations who will not necessarily feel comfortable with this at all.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, it's
2: it's such a dynamic situation, yeah.
1: And just, just to add, I think, you know, uh, you know, NATO and the OSCE meetings coming up or it's easy to look on them as sideshows. Uh, and in some ways they are. I mean, the main game was US, Russia and Geneva. But I think, as I as based on what you just said, and I think this is true, that at NATO, if the alliance can come across to the Russians as very unified and very determined, with the fissures that we know are there uh, in, in in various ways, those fissures not as apparent, but instead uh, the Russians see a very united uh, and determined alliance that might help us a little bit. And I think tomorrow. Uh, that NATO meeting is going to be critical to, at a minimum just to show that. Not so much what the Allies, uh, you know, have, have what they may say specifically, but showing that unity is going to be critical.
2: Yeah, I think it's very important. And as I said, on the on the larger international stage as well, you know, if Russia you know, gets away with all of this pressure on Ukraine, a further invasion of Ukraine and, you know, dismemberment, it has, you know, shockwaves on a much larger um arena you know, and yeah. a much arena than just on the European front. You know, and that kind of you know oblique references that they've also made that we haven't really talked about to, you know, the kind of the right of the United States to operate out of area, uh, you know, as they see it, the Asia Pacific, you know, mentioning in commentary, not necessarily in those documents, although it's alluded to in the document, you know, from December 17th about US Russia, when it talks about, you know, US uh, operations anywhere near Russian territory and it was very obvious to me and I think you know to you and others you know that this also w- would include Japan and the Asia-Pacific and then they actually explicitly say this in some commentary in Russia about the Sea of Ahods, the, the Barents Sea, the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea. I mean these are all areas that are you know kind of a, other other players in you know yeah. they can't demand you know exclusivity you know for any of the you know the these uh, you know a, 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 blocking freedom of navigation, et cetera. And, you know, the the gunboat diplomacy in the Black Sea and, you know, also around the Sea of Ahotsk. I know they're deliberately now poking, you know, on the Japanese-US alliance and, you know, tensions that exist there too. So if we do have, you know, Japan, India, you know, other allies and partners also speak out against this, this is kind of, you know, very important. You know, we've seen the Russians play with the Coral Islands, the Northern Territories dispute endlessly, you know, over the last uh, 21 years, Putin constantly dangling out a potential resolution in front of Japan to create a wedge. And then, you know, in fact, building up their military installations there because they want to be part of that game in the Asia Pacific. And that is, you know, a strategic element that they can play there. And, you know, say basically, you know, saying to the Japanese that, you know, kind of look, you know, the the, the United States isn't there for you anymore. You know, we can be a bridge and a broker. We can help, you know, kind of solve some of your problems with China. You know, just getting right in there at different points as well. So, you know, we have got a larger arena to think about here. And I think, you know, that the, the Russians haven't necessarily calculated how others' reactions might be.
0: Yeah, it's such an important point. But that that playbook of dangling diplomacy, as I kind of think they did on Monday, while still building up forces around Ukraine is obviously something that's at play here. But I don't want to keep you any longer. Fiona, we were just doing a rapid reaction. This has been incredibly rich. Um, thank you for doing it. And I hope we can have you on again um, for an even longer discussion at some point not in the not too distant future. So thanks so much for doing it. Um, and we'll talk to you soon.
2: No, oh, well thanks you. for having me. There's a lot for us to keep our eyes on. There yeah. sure is. Yes. I mean, yeah,
0: we didn't, I I mean, you I wanted to go into Kazakhstan a little bit, but but yeah, there's there's so much. There's so much happening. So the all the reason why you need to come back.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks so much, guys. Really great to be with you. Take care.